This is Play by Playcast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play by play guys. For play by play guys, by I'm told, a play by play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now, here's the host of Play by Playcast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay. Here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. All right, another week, another pod. Thanks, as always, for the subscribe, the stream, the download, checking out Play-By-Playcast, the podcast about Play-By-Play broadcasters for Play-By-Play broadcasters, hosted by a Play-By-Play broadcaster. My name is Joel Gadette. I'm the radio and television voice of the Ball State University Cardinals, and this is a professional development podcast that dives into the tips, tricks, experience, process, stories, and preparation of some of the biggest and best play-by-play announcers in the business. Our guest this week is Bill Roth, who I have known for 11 years. I have known Bill Roth for about a third of my, more than a third of my life. I have known Bill Roth. The longtime voice of the Virginia Tech Hokies from 1988 until 2015. He then moved to UCLA as their football and basketball radio voice and then came back east and has a host of projects now. Uh, Among them, he does college basketball for a couple different outlets and college football on ESPN. He's made the switch over to the television side. He is teaching, which we will get to in a second, and then he does uh, some radio hits, uh, the Roth Report, uh, ACC Today, whole bunch of different ventures that Bill is uh, tied up in. He is uh, he's not lacking for something to do. Uh, and chief amongst that, really, Bill, since I've known him, has been a teacher, has been a guy that has always been willing to take someone under their wing. And he and I have spent countless hours on the phone talking about career, uh, the business, the craft, life, uh, a lot more time that he has spent on the phone with me than he would ever like to or need to. Uh, but he's always been willing to lend a hand and lend an ear. Uh, really going back to when I first met him. I mean, he was just outgoing and helpful from Jump Street while we sat together at a restaurant in Salem, Virginia, eating a pizza called The Raj. I don't know what was on The Raj anymore. I have since forgotten. I think it was like a pepperoni sausage there might have been some mushrooms on there. I don't remember what else was on the Raj, but the pizza was called the Raj. <laughs> and that was the first time Bill and I met. Uh, Jason Benetti was there as well. And am I leaving somebody else out? I think there was a fourth. Oh, Alex Vizpoli, I believe, was our fourth. Uh, former minor league baseball broadcaster and now working up uh, doing a lot of play-by-play in media in Boston. It was the four of us the very first time I met Bill Roth over a pizza called The Raj. Uh, but so, so teaching has always been kind of central to who he is. And he now spearheads the sports media and analytics concentration at Virginia Tech. And I'll read from their website. I mean, it's, it's a degree that prepares you for career in sports communication and broadcast performance. And I mean, basically cuts to the chase. There's so many. There are a lot of places you can go. We talk about Syracuse all the time on this podcast. I love Syracuse. It's near and dear to my heart. It's very expensive. Uh, we will talk about it on this episode of the podcast. There there are places you can go now. It's becoming more of a common course of study. I mean, Ball State University is, is hung its hat where I work 
on a, a digital sports production track now at this point. Uh, the the options that you have to go into this field and this craft are are so numerous, and Bill has really embraced that at Virginia Tech. So if you're in high school and you listen to this podcast um, and you are curious about options that you have out there, take a look at, at Vodtech and take a look at Bill and uh, what he has going on there and, and the options that are provided to you in, uh, in Blacksburg, uh, among all of the other places that you'll look as well. But uh, we cover a lot of ground with all of that being said on this edition of the pod. Uh, we'll talk about his time at Virginia Tech. We'll talk about his time at UCLA. Uh, we will literally do the breakdown of radio versus television and, and, and the craft side of, uh, of this podcast, one of the hallmarks of what we do. But of course, where else would we start? Bill Roth is a Syracuse guy. Uh, there was actually, when I was in college, there was an edit suite at WAER Radio with his picture outside of it. It's called The Roth. Hey, where, where are you editing? I'm in The Roth. Uh, that's The Roth. It was it was just the sports edit suite that we always used. So I guess that was the first time I ever had interaction with him was when I walked into college. But the first time I met him, uh, I said, was in 2007. Uh, so Bill is synonymous with WAER and, and Syracuse. And actually... The very first words that you ever hear, I don't know if that is the case anymore, but certainly when I was in college, the very first words you ever heard for a Syracuse WAER broadcast were Bill's words. It was his voice. There was always this little bump that would play, and it would say, you're listening to WAER, the original home of the orange. And it was Bill Roth's voice, the start of every single football, basketball, or lacrosse broadcast. So as we do with many... As we do with all Syracuse guys we have on this podcast, we start with his time at WAER with the likes of Mike Tirico and Ian Eagle and Dan Horde and everybody that was there in the late 80s, including Paul Peck, who we had on this podcast several weeks ago. And we actually talked about a game that he and Bill did together, the 1987 National Championship game, Syracuse against Indiana. And as we recorded this podcast, Bill had actually just found the cassette tape of that game. That's where we begin. Pleasure to finally have Bill Roth on this podcast. A guy that's meant a lot to me over the last decade. Bill Roth on PXPCast. It's funny. I have no idea what to do with this cassette because I don't even have a player anymore. So it's kind of worthless. It's just a plastic case. That was an amazing time because uh, Bobby Knight and Indiana were rolling and Coach Patino was at Providence and Jerry Tarkanian was at UNLV and then Jim Beheim at Syracuse. And that was the final four. So the press conferences were unbelievable. The games were incredible. Uh, Syracuse and Providence had a bench-clearing brawl in the national semifinal game. And at the time, it was the largest crowd to ever see a college basketball game. And then that was eclipsed a couple nights later for the championship game. So as a college kid, you're around all these superstars, these amazing crowds and coaches, and there's a national championship on the line for your alma mater in your senior year. So... It was really overwhelming, but it was an amazing opportunity and one of those great opportunities that you hear a lot from those of us that went to Syracuse. Did you call the bench-clearing brawl, or was that Paul? You know, it's a great question, and I don't recall. <laughs> I know It made a very large you know, impact. <laughs> well, back in the 80s, in the Big East, there was a brawl every game. I mean, Fair. Syracuse-Georgetown was like WrestleMania every game. <laughs> whether it was at the at the, that time the cap center or the dome or down at Madison Square Garden it seemed like there was always there was always a fight and people getting a headlock in the middle of the basketball court 
what do you remember about calling a national title game as a high school or as a uh, as a college senior um, and being on that stage and I mean being in, in an arena with the largest crowd to ever witness a college basketball game to that point and um, you know we talk a lot on this podcast about how you handle elevated heightened situations that's like the premio as as a student being on that stage uh, how do you handle it It was a combination of spring break and a career launch. At least that's what you'd want it to be all at the same time. Because, <laughs> you know, you're, you're in New Orleans, and, and, and Joe, I, I know you never go out, but, but uh, <laughs> there, there are things Don't other than Bourbon Street. Yeah, yeah, there's other things to do in New Orleans uh, when you're on spring break with like, like, all your college friends. Then <laughs> prepare a play-by-play chart and, and – <laughs> figure out if uh, Sherman Douglas is going to guard Steve Alford. And so we, I think we had a good time. I mean, you know, uh, Paul and I did the game. Tariko was our sideline reporter. I thought we had a pretty good broadcast and, and it ended up being a classic championship game and for Indiana, one of their great moments ever. And for, for those of us that were graduating from Syracuse uh, a month later, it was a, it was a real devastator. Sideline reporter never went on to do anything though. <laughs> Just flamed no. out. No, we had Mike rolling around the Superdome. Mike was a year behind, so the seniors got to do the game, and Mike was the junior. So he was rolling around, roaming around the Dome uh, in New Orleans, uh, interviewing VIPs. And there were a lot of them there that night. What was it like as a student back then? Because, you know, and I guess it's different now because it's 30 years after the fact. So we can kind of look back on it, and every, you, you see what everybody has gone on to become. Uh, but it, I, I always say that that was like the golden age of AER because of the amount of people that were there in like a six year window. Um, what was it like? And did you kind of know uh, that everyone there was going to go on to do what they did at the time? Did you kind of have a feeling that this was a good group? Well, I think everybody knew how great Tariko was, but there were some other great people there that, that, you know, Doug Sherman, who's with ESPN, and John Frankel, who's gone on to great things at HBO. And Dave O'Brien was on our staff, and he's with the Red Sox, and Todd Callis with the Astros. And, yeah, I mean, there was no lack of talent, but you know what? You didn't think about it then. We were just a bunch of college kids <laughs> and, and trying to do what college kids do, you know, cut class and not get caught. Um, you know, who's going to get the better game? Uh Who's who's driving to Morgantown? I mean, those are the things that you really <laughs> focused on, not necessarily uh, who's going to do what. There, it was a different era in terms of when you could get out of college, the jobs that people got. You know, my, my first year there, Greg Papa graduated, and his first job was the voice of the Indiana Pacers. And you know, Sean McDonough, who was in Greg's class too, same thing. He jumped right to Boston, and you know that we don't, we're not seeing that today, like we saw in the, in the mid '80s or the late 80s, I guess I should say, where you could pop right out of Syracuse and, and, and get on the air. But that being said, a lot of guys did that. You know, Danny Roach went back to Boston, and he's been a star at WBZ ever since. And, and so uh, it, it was just a totally different era. What was Tariko like? He had a lot of hair. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard, we've, we've had, uh, we've had uh, anecdotes on this podcast before that like professors <laughs> used to genuflect as he walked by. Uh. <laughs> you know, Mike, you know, he was one of those guys that when you walked in, you just knew how amazingly talented he was, but probably like everyone else who's been on your show, what an amazing person he was. I mean, yeah. he was just a great guy to be around and, uh, we had so many great memories, but most of them are, are 
you know, hanging around downtown, having a pizza or, or, or 2 a.m. in the studio, cutting a pregame show. And so to those of us, you know, he was just Mike. Uh, he wasn't <laughs> what everybody knows today. I will tell you that in 1986, we all went to Philadelphia to broadcast the Syracuse Temple football game. And we stayed at Harry Callis's house because <laughs> Todd was on the staff. So if you can imagine, it was me and, and Paul Peck and Mike Tarico and Todd. And we all drove down. They had a house. Their home was right outside of Philadelphia. And I remember this vividly because it was the, it was the weekend that the, that the Red Sox and the Mets played in the 86 World Series. In fact, we watched the ball go through Bill Buckner's legs in Harry Callis's basement. But it was just surreal because you're sitting around the, the, the table. They made breakfast for us. You know, you're used to Harry Callis talking about the Phillies and Juan Samuel. And instead you're getting, would you please pass the ketchup? You know, and it was just so awesome uh, back then. So I think we were just in awe of, of, of being there. But it was just a bunch of college kids. That's wild, actually. Um, did, did he say it's out of here when, when, when the ball <laughs> went through Buckner's legs? Like, I... <laughs> <laughs> just gets up, walks out, leaves the room. It was amazing. I, I mean, I, I, I vividly recalled in in uh, in their home in Radnor. Uh, Harry was great, by the way. Uh, you know, to all of us, and I think that's an advantage that you know we see now, where Ian Eagle's son Noah's at SU, and you know Todd's dad uh, was so successful. I'm sorry, that's his son. A lot of that. I just figured he went back to school. It was the same guy. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, we're, the, the legacies that, that go through Syracuse are pretty strong. Yeah. And, and, and that, that was, it was really nice to have a resource like, like Harry Callis. Who did you look up to when you were in college or even before? Who, who, were, who were the guys that got you into this and, and why? Well, growing up in Pittsburgh, the, uh, the announcers were held in such high esteem. And Mike Lang, who is the broadcaster for the Penguins, still uh, lived in my neighborhood. And... I had a chance to meet him and, and talk with him, and he kind of painted the picture for me even when I was in high school. But, you know, that was the era where the baseball announcers were, were, were gods to me, whether it was Joe Buck or Vin Scully and, and the guys who did the Pirates games, Bob Prince and then Milo Hamilton, who ended up in Houston for all those years. Uh, those, are, those are the people. But I would say Buck and, and, and Vin Scully and, and then, of course, uh, Bob Costas. Uh, why do you do what you do? What is it about all of this that attracted you, that, that drew you in, that was the lore of it all? Well, Joel, if you've seen me, I know this comes as a great shock. I was not a great high school athlete. No. And, uh, Stop it. I know. Shocking. <laughs> I could have been a great basketball player. I, I'm convinced the one thing that held me back, Joel, the one thing was gravity. Because <laughs> it really hurt my, my uh, 360 move. Just loved it. I mean, I remember sitting in Three River Stadium and, I, and everybody else would be looking at, you know, the Pirates would be getting set to play the Phillies or the Dodgers and all my buddies. And they'd be looking at Dave Lopes and Ron Say and Steve Garvey and Tommy Lasorda and Dusty Baker and all those great Dodgers. And I'd be turning around looking up in the booth trying to find Vin. And I was just weird, I guess, in that way that to me, the, the stars were in the booth, not in the dugout. You know, you said that uh, it was a different era back then, too, in terms of when guys got into it and they came out of college and they were winding up in big-time jobs and in big-time markets. It's funny with the way things wound up for you is uh, you wound up at Virginia Tech pretty quickly. Um, It was not Virginia Tech back then, though. Uh, Did you think when you got there that 28 
years later you would still be the voice of the Virginia Tech Hokies and that it would turn into what it turned into? Well, when I first came to Virginia Tech back in 1988, it reminded me so much of Penn State, a school. I grew up in Pittsburgh, and so I had a lot of opportunities to go to Beaver Stadium. And half my high school, I think, went to Penn State. So when I first came down here, it was like, this looks just like State College. Mm. And there are, there are a lot of similarities in terms of the fan base. It's, it's a somewhat rural campus that you drive up, and then there's this massive football stadium. And, and the football aspect of it can almost be like a religion but the passion for the school is there. And, and Virginia Tech always had that. And I just kind of wrote it. Frank Beamer was a very young coach and he turned it into something really good. And then the program got into the big East, which really launched it nationally. And then the ACC. And it was a, it was a time in Virginia where the population really grew and some great, great players played high school football in this state, like Michael Vick and D'Angelo Hall and, and names that people are really familiar with. And they came here and, and, and they won an awful lot of football games over that quarter century. How did you come up with the, the opening line that you had before every broadcast? And when did that become a thing for you? Well, from the blue waters of the Chesapeake Bay to the hills of Tennessee, yeah. that line. Virginia you know, Tech Hokies are on the air. On the air, yeah. So the, uh, <laughs> the original format for the game uh, called for, the, for Hokies are on the air as a cue to hit up a pre-produced kind of uh, st stinger that went into billboards. And that was the cue for the engineer. And so that's how I had to end it. <laughs> he was waiting <laughs> to hear the words on the air and then boom, it fired. And, and, and there was that sound effect stinger. but I wanted to lead something into it. And, and, and I talked with a bunch of different people ab about it. And uh, another SU, uh, uh, SU colleague of ours, Tony Caridi worked up in West Virginia and Jack Fleming, the longtime voice of the Steelers and WVU, would always write this long scene setter. And Jack had had something very similar to that. And, and so I wrote something up that I thought would kind of reflect the mission of the net radio network at the time, which was to reach fans, regardless of where they were, throughout the Commonwealth of Virginia. And so that's what I came up with. And people seemed to like it. And so I kept doing it. And then it really caught on. You know, I read the, and, and we've had this conversation before uh, as well, but, it, and you've said publicly since that you didn't regret the decision to go to UCLA um, the the year that you spent out West. What did you learn about doing that? Um, and I, how, how much of an introspective experience was it for you to, 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 uh, to be out in the, in the conference of champions? Well, personally, I learned an awful lot about myself and what's important to me, which would be a totally different podcast. <laughs> but well, no, but I mean, and, and you know, I, but well, I'm glad you started there though, because I, I asked the question just from the standpoint of like, particularly on the younger side in this industry, uh, and I'll stick my hand in the air on that one. Like, you always kind of think about like the the what's next, what else is out there, kind of feeling, um, and you, sometimes when you're on the younger side, you you forget like, well, you, you've got it. You know, where you are right now is really good. Um, and so I, I was curious from your standpoint of seeing that from your perspective and how much you missed being where you were once it was gone. Yeah. But UCLA is an amazing school. Great people, really great place. It just, it, it just wasn't a good fit for me. Mm. It, it paid an awful lot of money. <laughs> 
I, I will say that. And people say, well, the grass wasn't greener. Well, it was way greener, but it was bluer. actually. You know, yeah. <laughs> waved. Yeah. I just thought that uh, I had to try it. Mm. Uh, it's, it's an iconic program and I wanted to, I wanted to give that a run and I learned an awful lot. Uh, the, the broadcasting aspect is essentially the same. You know, it doesn't really matter if you're in a New York or L.A. kind of market or if you're in a way smaller market. When you're on the air, it doesn't matter if there's three people listening or, or three million. It's it's the craft that's important, not how many people are listening. And, and so it wasn't professional. I just I just didn't fit in, in 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 L.A. as I had hoped and as they had hoped, obviously, as well. So I had the opportunity to come back to tech and, and get into TV three years ago. And it's it's been a, a lot of fun. Uh, over the last couple of years, but no, I don't. I don't regret giving giving it a shot. I think had I not, had I not tried, I think that's where the regret would have been. Sure, hundred percent. No, I and no it make, makes makes perfect sense that way too. Um, let's talk about the craft side of it though, and uh, how that remains the same, or I guess in some ways different, uh, because now you're doing a lot of television work, and you and I've had the conversation before about the fact that they are two completely different animals. So, uh, and I know you you spoke about that this summer in uh, in Winston. So uh, blank canvas for you in terms of differences between uh, television and radio and uh, how you've conquered those. Well, you know it, and you're doing it really well. I mean, you're doing Ball State, and then you're popping on Big Ten Network, or you're popping on CBS. You know the difference, right? Mm. It's, I don't it, know if I do totally it well, different. but I do know the difference. <laughs> you know, I, I think when you're doing radio, whether you're doing a high school game or a college game or even a pro game, in, in a lot of ways you're kind of like the, the – acoustic guitar solo act mm. you're kind of up there by yourself you are the producer the director you're telling the story as vin would say paint the picture that's there's a real craft to that and i think that that's the best way to put it in television the play-by-play guy is totally a facilitator it's almost as if um instead of the solo act with the acoustic guitar you're part of a big symphony and you're setting up your analyst and you're working with your producer and your director and you're using the pictures to, to, to tell the story you're you're writing the captions to the picture and and it's totally different but a lot of the skills are the same but you're definitely part of a bigger team and and if and for me i really enjoy working with a graphics guy all week about what we're going to build and talking about uh storylines and, and how we're going to tell them with my producer and my analyst and I was blessed, you know, at Virginia Tech, I had one color guy the whole time for 27 years and hundreds of games and thousands of hours, and that's Mike Burnup. And I really enjoy whether I'm now, if I'm working with Mike Golick or Christian Ponder or Ray Bentley, and this year, John Kinjemi, I enjoy working with them and setting them up just like I did with Mike. I, I think there's a lot of chemistry that, that that's the most important thing to any of these broadcasts. Um. Tell me about the prep part of that, like the week leading into it, and how much. Like, what kind of work do you do in terms of like dealing with producers, dealing with graphics people, how you're going to paint stories? Like, what is the conversation you guys have in terms of setting up the story arc in advance? Well, I'm learning on that regard too, and that's been that's been the biggest difference. You know, I think in 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 you know when we would prep for a radio broadcast you do your chart and you put in stats and you put in field goal percentage and three point percentage and free throw percentage and and trends and and, and whatnot and there was a big focus on numbers and on tv 
particularly with ESPN, every week in the meetings, they talk about the fact that you want to humanize everything. And, and that's the most important thing. You, you, you don't look at the game notes to necessarily get uh, Virginia hasn't beaten a top 20 team in four years. You look at the story of Bronco Mendenhall and how is this win over Miami going to impact his program and what they're trying to do. And you, you tell his story. And, and, and I think that's more, more what it is. And, and so in the preparation for it, it's, it's a lot different. I find myself doing less filling in stats and more writing down on a card um, someone's personal story or his or her background. It's almost as if I, I feel like I could do a broadcast on the radio without ever talking to a person. It wouldn't be good, but I could do a, you could do a radio broadcast without ever doing an interview. Like if I didn't speak to a player, it would be fine. Um, if I tried to do that on television, it would be a disaster. Does that make sense? Exactly. And, and that, and that's what, that's what I've worked with some really great producers too, by the way, I, I, I've been talking about some of these analysts, but the, the producers were really storytellers. It's, it's really a television show more than it is a game. And, and, and it's becoming more and more that way. And I think, so for example, I think, I think that's what ESPN felt with, with, with Joe Tess is that it'll be more of a show. And I think that the industry is going that way. It's, it's really not a game. Uh, it, it is to us because we're play by play guys and we're sportscasters, but for the network, it's a television show. And whether it's, ESPN's Monday Night Football or ESPN's Saturday Night Primetime, that's the name of the show. <laughs> and, and our job is to, is to em, embellish and tell the story and make it a great show. If it's a good game, that's, that's terrific, that it's easier. But if it's not a good game, it's up to us to make it a really entertaining show. So what do you need going into it? Like, what's the mandatory for you uh, in terms of, is it, I mean, is it, you've got to read X, Y, and Z, or this is a conversation you have to have. And then in that conversation, what are the most important questions that you need answered going into any given week? If you get a great SID, he can really help you along because uh, there'll be some clippings and you'll go back and read a feature story on, a young man or his mom and dad or his brother. And, and then you can work on that. I would say it's easier at the beginning of the season in a way, because, you know, we're, we're in the week eight, nine. Now the college football season, <laughs> a lot of the good stores have been taken. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, you know, if you're doing a Clemson game, how many times can you tell the Kelly Bryant story now? And so I think that in, in the grand scheme of things, it, it's, it's, it's doing homework and, it's it's not looking at statistics and free throw percentage in basketball or yards per carry in football. It, it's tell me about a guy. Tell me about a coach. Why is this happening uh, in the game? Is it in a big picture kind of way? But secondly, it, it's it's really setting up the analyst. I, a lot of it is Ray. How do you want to tell this story? Or, or you know, Mike Golick Jr. is tremendous. And I'll say, all right, Mike, I'm going to set you up on this. How should we say it? How, how do you want to pitch this? And you do that in meetings and, and then your producer will chime in. All right, let's build, let's build a graphic for that. Or, or we've got, let's get some video from, from his high school game. So when you tell that story and, and, and so it's really just a collaborative effort where there's a bunch of people sitting around a table or on a conference call uh, going through it. Is it harder to paint the picture or to caption a picture? 
<laughs> I'm, I think they're both challenging in their own way, but you know, like anything else, if you prepare for it and, and know what you're going in and have a game plan, you know, the hardest chemistry test can be easy. Even if you, if you stink at chemistry, which I did, <laughs> you know, but if, but if you, if you kind of know what you want to do, uh, they're, they're, they're both achievable. Well, I asked that as kind of a loaded question too, just from the standpoint of, because while you're captioning a picture on television, you still have to actually call the game too. Um, and that I think is always the difficult balance. Um, how did you find that balance and how do you strike that balance of physically calling the game, but not saying too much because they can obviously see the picture. And then at the same time being the, the captioner and the storyteller yeah. in chief as well. You are a really good interviewer. Great question. All right. So here, here's an example of that because the, I didn't know three years ago when I started doing TV all the time because I'd done a lot of radio. So I, I had I had uh, breakfast with a with a director who's done a bunch of my games. His name is Tim Sutton. And Tim, longtime guy in Chicago and, and worked was a, a EP at the Big Ten Network and really helped launch that when it when it started a decade ago. And he said to me, you know, as a director, when I walk into a stadium, I look where my cameras are going to be and what am I going to do after there's a touchdown. He said, so if I'm doing a game at Wisconsin between Wisconsin and, say, Michigan, and Wisconsin scores a touchdown, I have in my head exactly how I'm going to punch it up. I'm going to show the touchdown. I'm going to take a shot of the crowd. I'm going to go back to the celebrating players. Then I'm going to show the Wisconsin coach back to the crowd. I'm going to put a mic on the band. We're going to hear them play the Wisconsin fight song. I'll show the Michigan coach back to the crowd, right? All that happens in like, you know, like seven seconds, right? And I have in my mind as a director what I'm going to punch up. If you as the play-by-play guy talk over me while I'm doing that and talk about it's his fourth touchdown in four weeks, something like that, you've ruined what I want to do to tell the story, which is Wisconsin's got a great fight song. We need to hear that. And that's the collaborative effort of it. That's where I say it's like a symphony. So a good play-by-play guy is going to get out because it's the picture that's telling the story. It's the audio of the Wisconsin band, and it's Tim in the truck punching up the different cameras in, in an eight to 10 second sequence that really is riveting to the audience. And so a play-by-play guy could mess that up if he talks or says something that doesn't fit the picture. So when do you jump in with the four touchdowns in four weeks deal? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Like what, what I usually do is lay out I, as soon as as soon as we wipe to the replay, let the analyst come. In. Yeah, in, in that instance, I think less is more. Now it helps if there's a packed stadium. If you if you're doing a game and true, and, and you don't have that roar and, and the, the band isn't mic'd and, and nothing happens, then you got to change your strategy. But I, I, I think there you you kind of step aside and, and, and let a good analyst recap the play right out of the replay. Well, and then like the X number of touchdowns and X number of weeks becomes a pre-snap comment later you know what i mean yeah or you let your graphic guy put it up and, and that's, yeah, another that's true thing too that, yeah. that we really work a lot on is is and my talent stats people we don't hand me a piece of paper with a stat on it tell the truck first and then we'll do it together i think it's really important that it, that um it's a visual medium and you just don't read a stat on the air on television you you, you get support um from the truck and and, and I think, you know, one of the other things is that you go back to your main, you know, there's such quick audience turnover. And Joel, you and I, we talked about this a lot, the, 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 the top of the game notes, what you, you use in radio, go back to it all the time because 
the people that were listening at three o'clock aren't listening at 20 after. And, and it's the same thing in television. You, you want to reset a bunch and, and reintroduce what you're doing and, and, and whatever those top storylines are, keep going back to it. It's, it, it may sound repetitive, but in the grand scheme of things, the, the, the simpler you keep it, probably the better you, you are. How do you work in an analyst too? best practices from that standpoint? Like, are you a, are you a leading question type or a direct question or just like a leading statement and then turn to him and look at him and have the expectation he's going to pick up on it? Like, how do you best weave in the person standing next to you? Well, but, but I've been really lucky. They've given me some really great analysts. So like with, with Golick, it's not a hard, it's not hard. I mean, he's going to jump right in and go, Whoa, here we go. It may be, look at that play, right? And here's what happened. You know, and he's like, Give me the stylus so I can design, you know, on the telestrator. Here's what happened, right? You know, Mike's just is, is that way. So I've been really lucky to have guys that are talkative and really know the game. Is there a challenge in that, though, too? Because you've got to be able to, I guess, both A, direct that, or B, just go in the direction that they want to take you also and be able to make it work as a cohesive unit. Yeah, I'm just having fun with it. And I, and I think that that's, that's something that you can build regardless of where you are have lunch with your, with your analyst all the time and, and hang around him and go to dinner and go to events and, and get their cadence and pacing down and, and they get to learn your cadence and pacing as well. And usually a lot of the things that we talk about on the air, we, we've talked about before we ever went on the air. So it's kind of the second time going through it. Uh, but if you have a really talkative guy, you know, Mike's really, really talented. You know, he's on the air every day doing his talk show and, He's on TV as well, a radio talk show and on TV. So he's, he's incredibly cerebral. Uh, his, his, his background as a college player at Notre Dame really l- allows him to tell some fascinating stories. And he's going to be a huge star. I, there's no, he already is. But I, I think he'll be even a bigger star as we go forward over the next couple of years. Um, if I can get into the nitty-gritty, and this maybe is more of a radio question than a TV question as well, but the physical – it's definitely more of a radio question. The physical play calling aspect of things too. Um, when when you sit down and listen back to something, uh, what is most important and what has to be in there every time? Uh, because the the thought I had, and I was thinking back, like I'm I'm listening back to this past week's game that I did, and I and it was like if there are seven things you need in every play, I felt like on every play I had five of them. And it was a different five. Um, and, like, that's fine. Like, you know, like a rainbow with five colors is great, but a rainbow with seven colors is complete. Um, wh- what are, the, what are the, s- the seven things that you need to have in there? And is it okay to, from time to time, drop one or two? Yeah, particularly when teams are going fast with this high-octane, no-huddle pace that just about everybody does these days. But you're, you're re- really spot on. The last couple of years, I've, I've, I've gone and done the Liberty Bowl on ESPN radio. And it's like, all right, you got to give the down and distance before every play now, whereas on television, you may never give it because it's on the screen. (laughs) People can see it. And you've got to be really conscientious about the time and the score. And I think we all have our own styles, right? I, I, I always love to give the hash mark or the wide and short side. And, and, and I'm big on the score, but, but I'm big on, on defensive formations too. And, and so, if the safety's creeping up on a blitz, I'm probably likely to say that pre-snap than, than, than some other people were because people are always thinking about what the offense is doing. Mm. And, and I'm more likely to say, you know, it's third and eight, for example, and you've been talking about 
<clears throat> a, a team has converted maybe four straight third downs, and you say, all right, they're coming on the blitz, the safety's creeping up, or they're backing off into zone. And so I think there's probably more than seven, but you got to rotate them through uh, during the course of a game. If you're always sitting the same formation over and over and over, uh, it, it's going to it'll become a, a little bit repetitive to the fan. And then you get into this. You've heard this, I'm sure, too, Joel, and a lot of young people's play-by-play. You get this constant stream of play-by-play where it sounds like the same thing over and over again yeah. for 20 minutes. And and, and, a, and, a, and a good high school or a good college football game can become drone zone, and it puts you to sleep because you're you're in that same tempo play after play after play. How do you look for that on the defensive side in particular? I feel like the the, the, the thing that we have – hesitancy toward as broadcasters is like we always give the offensive formation because there's a fear that if you take your eyes off the offense you'll be lost um so it's like the second you look to defense like you miss the guy coming in motion then there's a snap and a handoff and a jet sweep and you're like where did that come from um is it just a yeah it, it's a comfortability and you've got to be in control and you've got to understand the pace of it to be able to uh see the whole field a little bit that probably comes with doing a lot of games or in my case just being old, you know, I mean, <laughs> you, know, you know, I mean, I watched, you know, Bud Foster was Virginia Tech's defensive coordinator for, oh my gosh, since 95. You kind so, of know what his tendencies are. Yeah. I know what they're going to do and, and you can kind of see what they're doing. And uh, if, if you, once, once you do a bunch of games, you can kind of just sense it. You know, it's the same thing. Like if you, if you do, a hundred baseball games and over the course of a minor league season out of the corner of your eye, you'll just catch that the third baseman is guarding the line late in the game or that the center fielder is shaded to right center because uh, a guy's a pull hitter or late in the game. The first baseman isn't holding the runner on because the score is 12 to one and they're just going to let him right. You, you see that subconsciously because you've done so many games and so many innings and seen so many pitches. And, and the same thing happens in football. <laughs> you just, and basketball, the more games you do, you just pick up on things without even knowing, just like a coach would. You, you'll know right away that an official's out of position after doing this for 30 years, right? <laughs> you, don't have, you don't have to say it, but, but you've seen the block charge call 10,000 times. And, and, and so you just kind of know what's happening without even saying it, you just kind of, it's almost like osmosis. And, and, but I think baseball guys know that, right? Because they, they do so many games and there's so many innings and so many pitches. Uh, but, but by the end of a second year of doing minor league baseball, you've seen 200,000 things happen and you don't describe them all, but you've seen them all. Do you ever miss doing baseball? Yeah. That's my favorite sport. How was Chipper Jones favorite as a sport. minor leaguer? He was really good. Uh, <laughs> how's that for an understatement? Um, <clears throat> yeah, so I did four years with Richmond Braves Triple A team when Grady Little was uh, the team's manager, who I still stay in touch with. And 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 I've told people this too. I learned more uh, baseball from Grady Little than anybody, just being around him. And he was great, whether it was pre or post game in, in his office or in the dugout or in hotel rooms. He ended up managing the Dodgers and the Red Sox, I think, as a lot of people know. And he was uh, he was a, a star manager. He <clears throat> he had a lot to do with the with the success 
player development wise of a lot of guys that ended up starring in Atlanta for many, many years. But Chipper was one of his was his was his great greatest players ever coming up out of Jacksonville. And man, he, he hit he hit a baseball in in <laughs> it was like you and I hitting a hitting a driver off the off the, the tee. I mean, the ball would just explode off his bat. Great well, player. You're you're assuming that the driver <laughs> and the T for me, like <laughs> that would be a six four three double play. Um, yeah, dribble dribbler to the mound. I know yeah, I've done that too. Yeah, well, I, more often than not on my side. <laughs> uh, uh, how often do you listen to s- stuff back? And I, I probably more so now doing the television side of things. But like, even when you were on year twenty four of radio, like, how much would you listen back to stuff? Every game every game and go through it all. And are you like me? You're never as good as you think you were. And it's never as bad as you feared you were. Yeah. I thought I was terrible in the first half this weekend. It turned out it was okay. So, (laughs) and then the second half was the opposite of that. The the key is, you know, you, you, you want to get better all the time. Right. But the fact of the matter is we don't, right. Because sometimes like four years into something, you just have a bad game and, and that's true for players, and that, that's true for us as well. And the maturity aspect is you don't get frustrated with it. It's mm. like, well, I called that guy the wrong name. I'm not going to beat myself up over it. Or I got the score wrong going to a break. How can that happen? How can that happen? There's there, there's these massive scoreboards, right, <laughs> hanging from the roof or in, in the end zone of a football stadium. How can you get the score wrong? But we all do it. And you go to the break and you go, that's not the score. <laughs> and, and then you correct yourself coming back. And, and, but the key is you just can't beat yourself up over it and, and try to always learn and always get better. Always learn and always get better. I actually, my, my dad said to me yesterday, um, Ball State was trailing 20 to 7 on Saturday. And I just said, I said Central Michigan leads instead of 20 to 7, I said 2017, uh, which is an entirely different ball game. Um, and uh, did notice it in the moment and caught it after the fact. Then my da- I, I spoke to my dad and I go, how did, how did it sound yesterday? He goes, good, except you said you were down 2017 at one point. I'm like, that's the thing that stuck with you? Um, but yeah, uh, 100% been there, done that. Yeah, and I think, you know, I, for a lot of years now, I broadcast a lot of really bad Virginia Tech basketball games and some very lopsided games. And so you're, you're able to, to do in your head 72 to 57 uh, that's a 15 point deficit, right? So you, <laughs> you just do the math in your head, but inevitably once a season, uh, someone would hit a three point shot and, and, and Florida state, Florida state hits the three 51 46. That cuts the lead to eight oh, all, all the mean? time. What kind of math was that? How, how did that happen? And, and <laughs> so we all do it. And then you cor- obviously you correct yourself or your analyst which in my case was Mike Barnup would talk about my Syracuse math, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and you make light of it. And, and, and I'll say this, that whether we're, no matter what we're doing, uh, the self-deprecating humor seems to be, at least for me, the, the, the way out of things. Uh, if you can laugh at yourself and make fun of yourself and, and, and have a good time with it and, and not beat yourself up over it, it really helps because it's hard, man. We, these, these, especially for young people today, the, the money may not be what you hope, and you're wondering, is this job um, higher, even listening to my stuff or watching my tape, and why, why am I not getting a return phone call, and I'm not making any money. And you can beat yourself up over all these different things, 
but you can't because it's something that we love to do. And we're like artists. We are artists. And uh, the, the creativity is what we're in it for. And, and the craft is why we do this. I've asked many people that have broadcast um, transcendent figures on this podcast before how they describe those people. Um, and I think one of my favorite ones, I, I said to Tim Roy, I go, how do you make what every time Steph Curry does something ludicrous, how do you make it sound more ludicrous than the more than the last <laughs> ludicrous thing he did? Um, so that each thing, it doesn't just turn into a blur. Uh, so I'm curious from your standpoint, how did you make a Mike Vick ludicrous <clears throat> touchdown sound different than the previous ridiculous touchdown? Uh, I probably failed at that looking back on it. The one thing I will say is, you know, so when, whenever Virginia tech would have the ball, when Michael Vick was playing here, and I, I know Wes was the same thing when he was doing the Falcons games and the other guys that, that did Michael's games, you never would ever read a drop in, never read a, a card when Michael was about to take the snap, because no matter where you were on the field, you're in scoring position. <laughs> So something really cool is about to happen, whether whether it's an 80 yard touchdown or not, you don't know. But 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 a seven yard gain could be him, you know, jumping over somebody or spinning by somebody. And and so what I did is I came up with all these different ways to say grasping for air, because that's what a lot of linebackers and safeties would be doing with Vic. He had he had an amazing ability to juke and jive and and, and like a hockey cut. Uh you know, he would he would cut on a dime and except instead of snow flying, it'd be it'd be blades of grass flying up in the air and he'd be running the other way. And you just think of creative ways to describe what he's doing. What'd you come up with? Do you remember a lot of that? Now, now my guy, <laughs> my my guy, Mike Burnup pulled out a great southern colloquialism. He said that he was slicker than a peel onion and a bowl of snot. And uh that was something very creative that, that that Mike came up with in that regard. Interesting. I don't yeah, think I, I've yeah. never heard that one before, but I've also not no. been in the South enough. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of those Southern colloquialisms. You know, Vic was uh, uh, he he was he was transcended in a way that you know McNabb at Syracuse had, had done that, and, and Randall Cunningham had had done that. But I think Michael kind of took it to the next level, and he he was just so electric. And to this day, he's the best athlete that I had a chance to work with. You know, I think you could say who's the greatest player of all time. And, and people will talk about Herschel Walker, or Bo Jackson or, or whomever uh, on the offensive side of the ball. I don't think anybody that I've seen uh, more electric than Michael Vick in college. And uh, I, <laughs> if someone can if someone can top Vick, that'd be something really special to see. Uh, now that you're teaching as well. Uh, how much do you go back and revisit any type of question that we've talked about here today? Just in terms of like, does it, has it made you think about things in a different way or, or some way that you hadn't thought about them in 10, 15 years? Because you're not that you, I mean, you're well known for being accessible to younger broadcasters, but now that you're doing it on an everyday basis and it's literally your job. Um, how much have you maybe thought differently about things or, or how has it maybe even helped you um, continue to refine what you're doing every day? Oh my God, it's been a total life changer. First of all, I'm around a bunch of kids that have the passion like you do, right? And, and, they're, and they're naive in a way, but they're, they're really excited about it and they bring this energy and uh, they're, like a, they're like a bunch of puppies. And, and, and so it's kind of neat to be around that and, and, and to work with it. 
And I get to learn really cool millennial phrases. Uh, and, and I've got this incredible urge for avocado toast at all times now because that's all they talk about and, and, and things like that. So that, that's how it's impacted me. But yeah, I mean, clearly, you know, they watch my games and they, and then I get a critique every, every day I go back in the classroom. <laughs> you know, they're all critics, just like we are. Like you said, you should do that on camera, but in reality you did this. And, and so I'll, I'll, I'll hear some of that. That's fun but, that they watch with that kind of an eye. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, well, I I'm grading their, their assignments and they're grading mine. Uh, <laughs> and, and that's fine because you know, they're fans and, and they know what looks good, but no, it, it helps a lot. And actually you've given me a great idea. I think I should make them listen to this podcast and, and then, and then, put a couple of quiz questions up there and, and you've now saved me a, a full day of, of, of talking. We should just do like a, we should do a test word at the end so that they only know the word if they made it to the end of the podcast. It's like exactly. one of those discount codes. Yeah. The word is maroon. Yes. <laughs> no, but you know, this is all, you know, it's, this is all part of the Syracuse model. You know, whether it was, it was Marty Glickman that, that started this is, is helping the, the, the next generation or the people who are under you. Uh, and and the people that are coming along, and I, and I think Marty did that with Marv, and Marv did that with Bob Costas, and and and, and now we give annually the the, the Marty Glickman Award uh, at SU from Syracuse University, and it, it it goes to a great broadcaster. But part of that is for people that have have followed in Marty's uh, tradition, which is you always have time to talk with uh, young broadcasters or young writers, multimedia journalists now, right? Because everyone has to have the full skill set and do different things. And, and you see that all the time. And I think, and I'm so proud of that, Joel, because that's something that, that that's, that's the SU way of doing it. I know we, we talk an awful lot about whether it's Mike Tarico or Bob Costas or all the greats that have come through Marv and Marty and Dick Stockton and, and, and Len Berman and all those greats. But every one of those people worked with young broadcasters, even if they didn't go to Syracuse. And, and that's what I'm really proud of that our kids today are doing the same thing. Well, if people want to get in touch with you, uh, Bill, how do they go about finding you on social media and, and whatnot? Well, um, I'm pretty easy to find. I'm, you can find me on Twitter uh, and um, uh, Roth Report Online. We've got, we've got a website that we launched. It's up and running, Roth Report Online, and it's a great way to, uh, to, to get in touch with me. And if you are listening to this as a high school student, and particularly if you're in Virginia, <laughs> one of the things we talk about, Joel, you know how expensive it is to go to college. <laughs> yep. And, and 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 we've taken the Syracuse model, much of it. That's what we know. And and Andrew Allegretta is here. He's another SU guy. And, and we're trying to bring a lot of the SU principals to a, to a big land grant state school. And we've got 160 kids here this year, and I think that number will grow. All right, that is Bill Roth joining us here on Play by Playcast. And as we said on the top, like. Regardless of what else he's accomplished in his career, to me, Bill is always going to be synonymous with teaching, with education, uh, with helping younger broadcasters who are trying to find their way in this industry. He has so much paid it back and forward uh, throughout his career. So as I always say on this podcast, reach out to the people that you hear if they say something that you like. Um, do reach out to Bill and say, hey, you heard him on the pod and uh, you enjoyed what he said or you wanted to pick his brain further. I am sure he would be more than happy uh, to have that dialogue with you. Uh, until next week, though, we are out of time. So this is PXPCast. My name is Joel Gadette. The music you're hearing is Marshmallow. 
and we're out. Until next Friday, see ya. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.